0: forgot, I have one more announcement. We have a, some, one of our sisters lost her keys last week, and if you found them, and have been wondering what to do with them, if you could give them to me, she would love to have her keys back. So, thank you. That's worse than stealing someone's notes. Someone takes your keys. So, good morning, sisters. Gorgeous day today. Thank you for Coming. I know there are other things that you might be prefer to do, but you're in the right place today. I I wanted to thank Kara for her lesson last week. She did a, a wonderful job um, sharing about the journey across the desert and then the ocean and to the promised land. And um I she probably didn't get through her 17 pages. I have 16 today. You just never know. Um but it's, uh, it's, it's a blessing to, to really study hard and understand um, what we need to teach. Certainly, I learn more than, unfortunately, you do. But I, um, I was listening to Nancy Baird's talk given with these four chapters, 19 through 22, and we're in the last four chapters of 1st Nephi today. And I was really tired, and I put my headphones on and laid in bed and started listening to her. Talk and um, my husband came in about an hour later and woke me up and he said, "Well, that wasn't very effective." But I said, "Honey, the only thing I remember about her talk is that she dropped her Book of Mormon in the toilet." (laughs) And I guess she had that was one of the first things she talked about and I must have fallen asleep after and she I listened to it after that again. She gave a wonderful lesson, but she she was on her mission. Her and her husband were on her mission and. The pages were really loud when she was turning them, she was explaining why her pages were so loud and she had dropped her, her Book of Mormon in the toilet and then let it dry and now the pages were crunchy. So she said the water was clean. Um, so that made a huge impression on me, I don't think I'll ever forget that, it's funny what we remember. I actually sound like a probably a, an 11 year old boy since toilet humor is much more funny than, than anything else. So. Um, Today in the last four chapters, <clears throat> I, um, I don't know if you noticed, but when you started reading 19 and then you went to 20, if you noticed there was a little bit of change in the, the verbiage, and that change is because of uh, Isaiah. And I know that for some Isaiah is a little intimidating, and so I felt impressed today to talk a lot about Isaiah and start very basic with. Uh, understanding Isaiah and breaking down some of the things that he's trying to uh, relate to us and why the heck Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon, we'll talk about that. Um, so I hope that for some of you this isn't too boring but I really felt like let's start simple and we'll build upon that and the other teachers certainly will be <clears throat> uh, more in depth than I will today and then we'll, we'll get that far. But I, I thought of a story um, for some reason that happened to me in college, an experience that happened to me in college and um, when I was in college, I had to take a special populations class for my major. And um, so we were asked to do about 20 hours of service work for um, a, a particular population we chose. And we chose, my um, colleague and I, a, um, a home, a Down Syndrome home that a couple ran for adults. And there was an adult wing and a, and, sorry, a, a male wing and a female wing and so we went to them and we asked if there was something we could provide them or create an activity to help them and um, the couple said that you know what they would really really like to do is go on a date so we thought okay and so we started interviewing the individual adults and just really really darling individuals and they were so excited to be paired up with someone and so do a process of of, um, Talking with the adult couple that ran the home with them. Um, they helped us pair up all the couples. And so, on I, I think it was a Friday or a Saturday night, we loaded them all in their big van. And uh, my friend's name was Brenda. And Brenda and I jumped in the van and we drove to this, um, um, onto our date. But one of the things that I remember too is that there was one lady, and she was a little bit older than the others. Um, she was probably in her late 50s. And I couldn't understand anything she said. She just kind of mumbled and talked really fast and rambled. Um, But I I couldn't make out anything that she said. And I felt bad because she would talk to me. She was very vocal. And she was so excited for this date. And um, I had mentioned to the couple running the the home, do you understand what she says? And she said, no, I hardly ever understand anything she says. She said, the irony is, is that she teaches gospel doctrine. And so she said, but somehow they all kind of understand what she says, but we never, we, it's really more of a charades thing. So I thought that was kind of funny. So we went on this date, and she was really excited, and she was pretty intense. And so she was um, with her date, and she wanted to hold his hand so badly, and he would have nothing to do with it. So on the bus, I could tell she was kind of nitpicking at him and letting him have it. And of course, I had no idea what she was saying. He probably did. So we got to Temple Square. We we're going to go to Temple Square and tour around there, and then we we're going to go take them to training table so that the males could order dinner for the females. So we got to Temple Square. And by the time we got to Temple Square, and we all loaded out of the bus, and we started walking around, she had nothing, she didn't have anything to do with her date. She was so mad. So all the others kind of congregated together and kind of walked around, and she left. So I said to Brenda, I'll go follow her and and let her kind of cool off and then I'll kind of bring her back to the pack. So I started following her and she kind of stormed off and walked around and she went into the visitor center where the the Christus is. And she started um, walking around and she started looking at the pictures that were on the wall, the depictions of, um, I believe, the Bible. It's been a long time since I've been in that area different pictures, and there was a couple, um, I, I don't know if they were LDS or not, but they were listening to a sister missionary who was giving a tour, and they were standing and looking at this one particular picture, and it was of Christ, and so she was kind of walking around, and I, I'm pretty sure she didn't know I was following her, and at one point, she went over to this couple into this picture, and she kind of wormed her way in between them all as the tour was going on, she just kind of shoved them aside, and at this point, I was fairly close to her. I was between here and probably the bench, And she said, as clear as can be, that is my brother, Jesus Christ, and he loves me. And that was it. She walked away. She left. The couple and the missionary had no idea what had just happened. And she went back, and I followed her, and we went back to the group, and I didn't understand another word over the rest of the night. So I hope I'm relating this story to Isaiah today, that I know they're intimidated by some of the things that we will read, but you will be familiar with what was said today in the four scriptures, or the four verses, sorry, but um, open your heart and your mind and some of these things will become clear to you as we go through um, the scriptures today. So let's start in chapter 19. We're gonna read a lot today. It's Sisters and Scriptures. Um, stay with me. And um, I'm sure I won't get through everything, but I'll do my best. At the end of chapter 18, we learned that they had landed at the land of promise. It was called that because it was just as it says. To its inhabitants, the name was to be a constant reminder of their covenants and obligations to God. I read, so I read somewhere that when they landed, there were roughly 60 to 80 people that got off the boat. Um, I don't have that source reference. I don't remember it, so don't ask me. Let's just say I made that up. But it said 60 to 80 people and um, between Ishmael's family and uh, Lehi's family. When they got off the boat, they took care, they actually established and did their first harvest. So they landed um, and did their first harvest so they could gain food. And they continued their journey into the wilderness and it's as possibly the mountain regions or the bench land. So they actually um, kept going. So Nephi is commanded to keep commands of his own and record from previous prophets to communicate with his own family And people but knew not why, only that the Lord commanded him to do so. It tells us in 1824, they were blessed in abundance. They found, in verse 25, lots of ore, gold, and silver, if you can see that, among other things. And so this was an excellent opportunity for uh, Nephi to continue his writings. So for just a review about what I talked about the last time in chapter 1, verse 19, we read, And it came to pass that the Lord commanded me, wherefore I did make plates of ore that I might engraven upon them the record of my people. And upon the plates which I made, I did engraven the record of my Father, and also our journeyings in the wilderness, and the prophecies of my Father, and also many of mine own prophecies have I engraven upon them. first, record or large plates are about Lehi's ministry, his genealogy, the family travels of other historical events like political history and wars. The small plates, as you remember, or the second record is about Nephi's ministry, prophecies, and sacred or spiritual matters. So if you can remember, small records are with sacred things. Plates are explained like this in three and four, verse three and four, and in six, talking about the small plates, writing of sacred things and in 8 and 9 he talks about Christ's coming what what amazes me we're getting to the end of first nephi and how much we already know how many of the basic principles that we know about christ and about his gospel that we already know how lucky we are that we can continue to read and reaffirm the things we know but think about everything you've learned just in the first book of nephi and eight and behold he cometh according to the words of the angel in 600 years from the time my father left jerusalem so he describes how the world will judge god the savior as a thing of naught and nine the world because of their iniquity shall judge him to be a thing of naught. wherefore they scorch him and he suffereth it they smite him and he suffereth it yea they spit upon him and he suffereth it because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. This is mentioned in other passages in the Book of Mormon as well. In 2 Nephi 28.16, I'll go through these fast if you wanna reference them and look them up later, but don't worry about looking up now. In 2 Nephi 28.16, woe unto them that turn aside the just for a thing of naught and revile against that which is good and say that it is of no worth for the day shall come that the Lord God will speedily visit the inhabitants of the earth, and in that day that they are fully ripe in iniquity, they shall perish. In 2 Nephi 33, 2, But behold, there are many that harden their hearts against the Holy Spirit, that it hath no place in them. Wherefore, they cast many things away, which are written and esteem them as things of naught. Helaman 4:21. Yea, they began to remember the prophecies of Alma and also the words of Mosiah, and they saw that they had been a stiff-necked people and that they had set at naught the commandments of God. Additional scriptures with that phrase are in 12.6, Moroni 8.20. So clearly the phrase thing of naught means worthless or unimportant to those that judge. In the book, uh, verse by verse by Ogden and Skinner, they make reference to the hymn In this first slide it's called "O savior thou who wearest a crown it says no creature is so lowly no sinner so depraved but feels thy presence holy and through thy love is saved though craven friends betray thee they feel thy loves embrace the very foes who slay thee have access to thy grace when i um, lived in oklahoma and texas it appeared that the version of grace was defined a little differently um, and certainly made easier for those uh, that didn't understand it um, and and how we believe grace to be in the LDS church. Um, I, I found an article by Brad Wilcox that says his grace is sufficient and he wrote this in 2011 and he talked about it in a devotional and he was in his narration he was trying to explain to this girl what grace was and so he is describing to a girl what grace is, and still translate, still translates it. She translates this as so not having to do anything. I don't have to do anything, right? So he says Christ's arrangement with us is similar to a mom providing music lessons for a child. Mom pays the piano teacher. How many know what I am talking about? Because mom pays the debt in full, she can in turn to her she can turn to her child and ask for something. What is it? Practice. Does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Does the child's practice repay mom for paying the piano teacher? No. Practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. It is how he takes advantage of the amazing opportunity mom is giving him to live his life at a higher level. Mom's joy is found not in getting repaid, but in seeing her gift used Seeing her child improve, and so she continues to call for practice, practice, practice. If the child sees mom's requirements of practice as being too overbearing, here's my teenage voice Gosh, mom, why do I need practice? None of the other kids have to practice. I'm just going to be a professional baseball player anyway. You've never heard that. Perhaps it's because he doesn't yet see the mom's eyes. He doesn't see how much better his life could be if he would choose to live on a higher plane. In the same way, because Jesus has paid justice, he can now turn to us and say, follow me, keep my commandments. If we see his requirements as being way too much to ask, gosh, none of the other Christians have to pay tithing, none of the other Christians have to go on missions, serve callings, or do temple work. I didn't feel like that was a teenager kind of voice. Maybe it's because we do not yet see through Christ's eyes. We have not yet comprehended what he is trying to make of us. Elder Bruce R. Hafen has written, the great mediator asks for our repentance not because we must repay him in exchange for his paying our debt to justice, but because repentance initiates a developmental process that the Savior's help leads us along the path to a saintly character. Elder Dallin H. Oak says, referring to President Um, W. Kimball's explanation, the repenting sinner must suffer for his sins, but this suffering has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. Let's put that in terms of our analogy. The child must practice the piano, but this practice has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. So it's a shame that the people calling Christ and his teachings the things of naught don't appear to understand. The concepts of grace. So, so what are some of the things that you consider things of not in your life? I listed a few. Convenient church attendance, breaking the Sabbath, not attending sisters and scriptures. I'm always going to put that plug in. Not reading the scriptures, limited family prayer, limited visiting teaching, minimizing instead of magnifying your calling, little involvement in mending family relations, or not loving those that are really hard to love. In verse 10, I wanted to point out two things. We'll read verse 10. And the God of our fathers, who were led out of Egypt, out of bondage, and also were preserved in the wilderness by him, yea, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of God of Jacob, yielded, yieldeth himself, according to the words of the angel, as a man into the hands of the wicked men, to be lifted up, according to the words of Zinic, and to be crucified, according to the words of Neum, and to be buried in a sepulcher according to the words of Zenus, which he spake concerning the three days of darkness, which should be a sign given of his death unto those who should inhabit the isles of the sea, more especially given unto those who are of the house of Israel. So, first, the poetic pattern of parallelism. I'm sure that was on the tip of your tongue. The next slide shows um, a pattern that we see in the Bible often. So the repeated alternate parallelism shows, and as you notice, I have A's and then B's and the A's all um, have similar meaning and the B's have similar meaning, but they alternate lines. So in A, the God of Jacob yieldeth himself as a man unto the hands of wicked men to be lifted and to be crucified and to be buried in a sepulcher and so on. And so the other one talks about the angel and the prophets. The second thing, um, so Nephi records that there were three other prophets who are fairly unknown in verse 10 of chapter 19 who talk about Christ's events. We don't really emphasize and talk about them a lot. So let's talk about them for a minute. Neum, N-E-U-M, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He too was an Israelite prophet known only uh, in Nephi 19.10 who foretold the crucifixion of the God of Israel. Zenic. He lived after the days of Abraham and an ancestor of the Book of Mormon people. He and his teachings are referred five times in the Book of Mormon and are all centered around the Messiah. He taught that the Son of God would redeem his people, spoke of the Lord's anger with the people for their refusal to understand the mercies which had been bestowed upon them because of the Son and he prophesied that the Savior would be crucified and that the great destruction would accompany his death. He died a martyr as it says in Alma 33:17 And now my brethren ye see that a second prophet of old has testified of the son of God because the people would not understand his words they stoned him to death Zenus he lived prior to the time of Lehi and Nephi like Zenic Mormon talks about them in 3 Nephi 10:15 through 16 Behold, in 15, I say unto you, yea, many have testified of these things of the coming of Christ and were slain because of they testified of these things. And in 16, yea, the prophet Zenith did testify of these things and also Zenic spake concerning these things because they testified particularly concerning us who are the remnant of their seed. So this latter-day statement affirms that they were both Israelite prophets and they, they may well imply that they were of the tribe of Joseph Elder McConkie has declared, I do not think I overstate the matter when I say that next to Isaiah himself, who is the prototype, pattern, and model for all the prophets, there was not a greater prophet in all of Israel than Zenos. And our knowledge of his inspired writings is limited to quotations and paraphrasing summaries found in the Book of Mormon. Zenos sealed his testimony of Christ with his life as stated in Helaman 19. And now I would that ye should know that even since the days of Abraham, there have been many prophets that have testified these things, yea, behold, the prophet Zenith did testify boldly for which he was slain." So all three prophets were slain testifying of Christ. Some may be familiar with the allegory of Zenith in Jacob 5, talking about the olive tree and the house of Israel. Well, I won't go into it now, there is much that references these few chapters. One of the points made was that the allegory makes clear that Israel was scattered to preserve Israel. The house of Israel had begun to go into apostasy. If apostasy had been allowed to continue, it would have destroyed the tree, and the covenants and teachings would have been lost. Without the covenants and teachings, the house of Israel would not have been able to survive. Therefore, God took measures to ensure that Israel would survive. He drafted non-Israelites into the house of Israel to simulate growth, while at the same time he took parts of the house of Israel and scattered them around the world to be fed and nourished by the Gentiles. In First Nephi 19.11-24 Nephi introduces Isaiah as the prophet nine times, but refers to him by name only once in verse 23 where he talks about the prophecies that are given. Uh, in verse 11 and 12, Nephi talks about how the righteous will be visited by the Lord God's voice, if righteous and, sorry, voice, if righteous and another voice if you are not righteous. Think about your most annoying voice, times that by 10 and make it sound angry, and that's probably the voice you would hear if, you, if he was angry. Verse 15 through 17, and after all the doom and destruction comes the restoration. The gathering of Israel begins and all the earth will see the salvation of the Lord. As most of you know, the Hebrew word for Jesus is Yeshua, which means savior or salvation. So the gathering of Israel in the last days is a fulfillment of the covenant Jehovah made with prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ repeated this promise at which time he indicated that the covenant to gather Israel was first made with Abraham as part of the Abrahamic covenant. The Savior taught in 3 Nephi 21, 1-7 through that the coming forth of the Book of Mormon is a sign to the entire world that the Lord has commenced to gather Israel and fulfill covenants he made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Russell M. Nelson, of the Twelve taught that the Book of Mormon is central to this work. It declares the doctrine of the gathering. It causes people to learn about Jesus Christ, to believe his gospel, and to join his church. In fact, if there were no Book of Mormon, the promised gathering of Israel would not occur. So the gathering of Israel is both spiritual and physical. The spiritual gathering of Israel occurs when someone accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ and is baptized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Bruce R. McConkie emphasized in the importance of the spiritual gathering when he stated, the spiritual gathering takes precedence over the temporal. Men can be saved wherever they live, but they cannot be saved regardless of their abode unless they accept the gospel and come into Christ. Jesus." Christ taught that there would eventually be two centers of gathering, the New Jerusalem and the Old Jerusalem. As church membership expanded into other lands, President Spencer W. Kimball taught that the gathering place today is wherever someone lives. The gathering of Israel for Mexicans is in Mexico. Think about the pioneers who sacrificed everything to flock across the United States, eventually into Utah and other parts, but it's much different today. As President Kimball points out, in verses 23 and 24, Nephi telling his people that Isaiah. So, sorry, sorry, Nephi telling his people about Isaiah, so they can be persuaded to believe in Christ and give them hope, as we also need today. This would be the first time, Laman, this would probably wouldn't be the first time Laman and Lemuel and the family would have heard of Isaiah, as Kara talked about last week. Um, how educated they were, and certainly Lehi would have taught them. Incidentally, Isaiah in Hebrew is yeshiyah, meaning Jehovah saves. I don't know if I pronounced that right. but So let's talk about Isaiah for a few minutes. I'll give you some facts about Isaiah. Most frequently quoted prophet in the New Testament, Book of Mormon, and Doctrine and Covenants. The Book of Mormon hosts over 30 pages of Isaiah's writings quoting about one-third of the prophet's book. There are passages from 24 of Isaiah's 66 chapters, 425 separate verses of Isaiah quoted in the Book of Mormon, and 196 are identical, but 229 are quoted differently. 425 verses 391 teach something about the attributes or mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm quoting this from the Ogden Skinner book and there's a test after too, so I hope you're taking notes. Isaiah is not sequential. The prophet's 40 year ministry spanned the reigns of at least four kings from approximately 740 to 700 BC. We have no scriptural information about Isaiah's birth, childhood, maturation, or personal appearance. His was an era of political unrest, war, and apostasy. The house of Israel was divided into two kingdoms at the time, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, both living in fear of Assyria, as we know, in Egypt, but mostly Syria. In his lifetime, he saw Assyria take over. His counsel was not popular to any king he advised. So can you imagine how frustrating that is? the entire existence, and all of the um, prophetic things that he advised, there wasn't one king they accepted about. He was married and said to have at least two children. His writings were poetic in style, as you know, and many quoted Isaiah, Book of Mormon prophets, like Nephi, Jacob, and Abinadi, and most importantly, Christ. So, in the next slide, it said the purpose in quoting Isaiah was to highlight four major themes. Repentance and the judgments of God. Second is God's covenants and promises to the house of Israel. Third is his messianic prophecies. And fourth key events relating to the latter days. So relating to now. So why study Isaiah? Because we're commanded to do so. As it states in Third Nephi twenty-three one through three, and we need to learn all he's prophesied because it is for our benefit and in our behalf to learn of Christ. The use of symbols is important in Isaiah. I like what Skinner and Ogden said about this. It said they can conceal meaning. Symbols can conceal meaning, but understanding the symbols can reveal meaning. So, as we know, the more that we develop. A love and an understanding for Isaiah will be able to reveal more about what he's talking about. So why does Nephi start quoting Isaiah? And we read in 1923 and 24, and I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might fully persuade them to believe in the Lord the Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and our learning. And this applies to so much of us today. In 24, wherefore I spake unto them, saying, this is Nephi saying, hear ye the words of the prophet, ye who are of remnant of the house of Israel, a branch you have been broken off, hear ye the words of the prophet, which were written unto all the house of Israel, and liken them unto yourselves, that ye may have hope as well as your brethren from whom you have been broken off for after this manner has the prophet written." So it's Nephi's role and responsibility to teach his people that the most important thing is to believe in Christ. Isaiah does this so well. And President Monson's role is no different for us today. His role as a prophet. As you know, Joseph Smith adds words to make clarifications to Isaiah's writings. It's not that Isaiah got it mostly right or that it was supposed to have different meaning in our day. And we'll go through that in just a minute. When I was um, on my mission, and my mom may not be happy with the story, but when I was on my mission, I would mail letters. Do you remember what letters were instead of emails you get from your missionaries now? And I would mail a letter, and then she would go through my letter and circle it in red and correct all my misspellings <laughs> and my grammatical errors and send it back to me. She didn't do this all the time. I think it was for a joke. I didn't think it was very funny. Um, and I can still write the best run run-on sense of anybody here, so it obviously didn't help very well. Um, so, but Nephi he doesn't do that. He's a really good writer. Not every verse had words added to them. I wanted to give you an example of the first three verses in chapter 20 to show you how Joseph Smith translated Isaiah, which I'm sure most of you already know. But let's go through this the basic stuff here. So. I went through this with my husband last night and I had all the scriptures on the top wrong. So he was arguing with me that I had the whole scripture wrong and I said, no, I'm not. We had this little argument and then finally I realized I was wrong. It's brutal. Um, So in verse 1 it says, and are come forth out of the waters of Judea, sorry, Judah, or out of the waters of baptism, if you'll see in verse 1 in your scriptures. I've highlighted in red what Joseph Smith has added as compared to Isaiah 48 so chapter 20 is Isaiah 48, and 21 is Isaiah 49, and that's referenced up on the top of your Book of Mormon uh, at the chapter heading. So what does that mean? So it clarifies that waters of Judea means the waters of baptism, suggesting that this message is intended for those who had entered the covenant. Verse 2. They call themselves the holy city, but they do not stay themselves upon the God of Israel. And so just, uh, Joseph had put in, they, um, but they did not, and which identifies, whoops, identifies apostate condition. In chapter three, or sorry, verse three, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them, and I did show, them suddenly. Just one word that Joseph Smith adds. And this clarifies that the Lord revealed rather than did things suddenly. Helps clarify that. So it's just an example of, of what Joseph Smith did. So um, certainly you can have open your Isaiah 48 and compare as you go through it. But remember not every single verse is like this. Um, in First Nephi twenty nine through seventeen, by explaining that the Lord told the people that despite their wickedness, He would not abandon them. The Lord the Lord invites the Israelites to return to Him and keep their commandment or sorry their covenants. So they follow Him in name but not with intent or action. He has always showed them the things before they happen, so that Israel would know that God, not idols, brought all things to pass. But Israel still has not listened. When I was in MTC, um, we had brother and sister Pinnegar as our mission presidents in MTC. I I probably remember them so well because I served my mission in Prince Edward Island and right after their MTC experience, they came on a trip to Prince Edward Island. She'd never been there and I guess she wanted to go. And so I actually had an in-depth conversation with her in the woman's bathroom in the Charlottetown Chapel. That's for another day. But um, I remember she would give these talks in MTC and she said that, Uh, She said that in order to remember Christ's love, she kept a penny in her shoe. So I I wanted to, um, I know we have a mic today I think, don't we? Somewhere, cue the mic. I wanted to put out and ask you some suggestions, how much more often do we worry about things to come that never pass if you're a worrier, how much do you do that? Versus having high expectations of things that will be wonderful to come, so you worry more, more about the negative and don't look so much about the positive. Do we sometimes feel worried, stressed or afraid about? What do we feel stressed or afraid about? How can we overcome this? How do you have optimism for the future based on what we know? about the of mormon so how do you do it does anybody have any comments about how they get through their daily grind or week or month about looking based on the scriptures and some of the things we know besides the penny in the shoe no one no one has any ideas i don't either but i thought you guys would Okay, i got lots of pages so i'll just fill it in um, let's see, let's change gears for a moment uh, to less spiritual but historical figures trying to give people peace and solace in the midst of defeat and tragedy. Um, I was looking over the speeches of Winston Churchill and one of the speeches it's called The Finest Hour. It was given on June 18th of 1940 in the House of Commons. This is one of Churchill's most powerful and stirring speeches. France had just capitulated, and Churchill had to explain the dire situation while remaining positive and willing to confront the Nazis. Churchill said, what General Weiland called the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island uh, or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister or perhaps more protracted by the lights and perverted science. So let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Quote from Gandhi, you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. Mother Teresa says, life is a promise. Fulfill it. So look for a principle that can help you feel greater peace in your life, even during times of trouble. The prophet Nephi quoted all of Isaiah 48 in the Book of Mormon. He stated that his reason for reading that which was written by the prophet Isaiah to his brethren was that he might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord, the Redeemer. It's in 1923. In Nephi 21, 1 through 8, we read the the Lord's words to the Israelites who break their covenants, and he describes their rebellious behavior. So in uh, 24, and I did it because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow bass. What does that mean? What do you think that that means, um, the iron sinew? A sinew is a tendon. Which connects bone to muscle. Just as iron does not bend easily, a prideful person will not bow his or her neck in humility. In six, thou hast seen and heard all this, and will ye not declare them? And that I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. This shows a more positive knowledge. Isaiah not only heard, but saw. So he, I highlighted seen and heard is what Joseph Smith had added into there. In 28, yea, and thou heardest not, yea, thou knewest not, yea, from the time thine ear was not open, for I knew that thou wouldest deal with very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. Deal very treacherously is an act of deceitful, being de- an act of deceitfully. The phrase stating that Israel was called a transgressor from the ruling refers to Israel's history of rebelling against God. In 29 through 15, we read that the Lord told the people that despite their wickedness, he would not abandon them. He reassured them that they were still his chosen people. The Lord also identified himself as the first and the last in verse 12 signifying his eternal nature in 2010 for behold i have refined thee and i have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction Um, the analogy of the furnace and affliction ogden and skinner say the phrase but not with silver in isaiah disrupts the meaning of the verse but the book of mormon omits it This is great doctrine, this idea of being refined and chosen in the furnace of affliction, just as gold is smelted in the fire to remove impurities, so God has tried his people with fire to remove impurities. The Lord is working hard to draw impurities out of us, just as a diamond is carefully faceted and polished to reveal its inner beauty, so has Israel been shaped and polished. Trials are not punishment inflicted by a vengeful God, but tests by a loving Father who wants us to be refined and polished. Our impurities or weaknesses and faults get burned away if we can withstand the heat and pressure of our trials. Refineries heat up the metal to its melting point, at which time the impurities separate in a similar way God turns up the heat until we reach the point where we become refined so we can be used to him. The temperature necessary to refine each of us is different. Refinement is customized for each of us by a perfect and omniscient father. And it helps to know that troubles and trials are purposeful. We endure them for good reason. We are here on earth to be refined, and this earth is one big furnace. All of these metaphorical expressions about the refiner's Great fire Give new meaning to the statement of the prophet Brigham Young. Learn everything that the children of men know and be prepared for the most refined society upon the face of the earth. Um, so uh, in talking about love and intent for love, I, I have a story that I may get turned into social services later for, but I was going to share the story that um, that i've shared with some friends before in relating to love, um, this has probably never happened to you before, but as a parent, my husband and I one night kind of snapped we ha- were very frustrated with our children um, we We had to deal with um, your you know your mundane parent things, but we were disappointed in the fact that they would tease each other relentlessly, and then the phrase I was just kidding, was then said, as if everything would go away and everything would be forgiven. We hear that all the time. We were frustrated with being asked them to do their chores and they never did them. Or we asked them to do the chores and they did it, and we found out later they didn't do it. In other words, did you brush your teeth? Yes. And then their toothbrush is dry. So I don't know if you've ever had that, but we, we kind of snapped and we thought, we need to teach our children a lesson. And. Um, so we, we comprised a plan that night that we were going to tell our children when we got up in the morning that we were going to go on a trip, that we were going to drive to the airport, and that we had flights and we were going to go somewhere, um, but we weren't going to tell them where. And of course we didn't, and we felt really guilty about this, but we, we thought we would teach them a lesson about saying something that you did and then falling through with it. So we got up the next morning, and my son had a like a voice recital, and so we said, okay, um, we told him about the trip. Pack your bags, get your your airplane bag ready, and throw your coloring books in and your electronic devices and whatever. And they were so excited; they ran upstairs, and I said, and also you need to get all your chores done before we leave, before we go to this, because we're going straight from there to the airport. Okay, mom. So they um, hurried and did all of this and so um, we had actually packed blankets and towels in our bags to make it look like they were full and showed that we had packed for them and Mark and I kept saying I can't believe we're doing this and at times we felt really guilty and other times we were trying to keep a straight face. And so um, we figured if we could do Santa we could do anything. So we. we packed our bags in the car and we got, you know, we were kind of dressed up and went to this recital and Jake did his thing. And we got back in the car and kissed Grandma's goodbye. They were in on, the, on it. And we drove to the airport. And they were so excited and they were being so good. And, and Mark and I were really trying to not look at each other because we were both going to laugh. And we got up to the airport. and We got to the unload-load area. And we pulled in. We had about three seconds. We looked at each other and then just drove away. And my one child in the back said, what are you doing? And we turned and we said, we're just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, what? You're just kidding? And we said, yeah, we don't want to go. We're not going. I know we said we were, but we're not going to. And my one child, who has lots of things to say all the time, he was so mad, he did not say one word for like two days. He did not say another word all the way home. He would not speak to us. And my, my other child just burst into tears. That's not fair. I can't believe you said you'd do this. We'll never trust you again. You lied. And all the things that there was like, oh, good. These are all the phrases that we use on them. It was perfect. And we said, yeah, and so I got on my phone and I'd take pictures of all the things they didn't do that morning. They didn't make their bed, they didn't clean their bathroom. And I showed them all the things on the phone and I said, we didn't do what we said we were going to do today, but we get this from you that you don't do what you say you're going to do either. And how does it feel? How does that feel? Of course, one didn't say anything and the other threw the tears, but that's not fair and so I I think we got our point across but I I, so we we got it we told the story to a few of our friends and a couple weeks later I said so did it work did how was it how'd it go and we said well it worked for about a week and that's about it you know that we'd all we'd have to bring up is airport we'd get a big glare and they would go do it but I, I think the reason I tell you this story is that the intent was not out of love was out of revenge, <laughs> anger, frustration, trying to get back. And um, to this day, it gets back at us, because we always say, when have we ever lied to you? And they say, remember that time when you took us to the airport and we didn't go? <laughs> and we hear that all the time now. And so um, with Heavenly Father, and the trials that we receive, and the things that we go through, is all based on love that his intent is love. Um, I, Elder Faust writes an article, The Greatest Challenge in the World, Good Parenting. The completed beauty of Christ's life is only the added beauty of little inconspicuous acts of beauty. Talking with the woman at the well, showing the young ruler the stealthy ambition laid away in his heart that kept him out of the kingdom of heaven, teaching a little knot of followers how to pray, kindling a fire and broiling fish that. That his disciples might have a breakfast waiting for them when they came ashore from a night of fishing, cold, tired, and discouraged. All of these things you see led us in so easy into the reality, the real quality and tone of Christ's interests, so specific, so narrowed down, and so enlisted in what a small is small, as so engrossed with what is so minute. And so it is with being parents. The little things are the big things sewn into the family tapestry by a thousand threads of love, faith, discipline, sacrifice, patience, and work. And to be a good father and mother requires that the parents defer many of their own needs and desires in favor of the needs of their children. As a consequence of this sacrifice, conscientious parents develop a nobility of character and learn to put into practice the selfless truths taught by the Savior himself. Charity is the pure love of Christ. It is the love that Christ has for the children of men and that the children of men should have for one another is the highest, noblest, and strongest kind of love and the most joyous to the soul. In 2011, for mine own sake, yea, for mine own sake, will I do this, for I will not suffer my name to be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another. Um, what Joseph aunt entered there was, uh, will not suffer, I think he added this too, clarifies that God intervenes. In twenty sixteen through 17, come ye near unto me, I have not spoken in secret. As Paul declared in Acts twenty six twenty six. this thing was not done in a corner. No saving principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be found only in an obscure text. The voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is, no, there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. So the gospel is for everyone. The vegetarians, the Utah fans, the independents, the yogis, and even people that like pet snakes. The gospel's for everyone. 18, eighteen, oh that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, that they had thy peace being as a river, and that thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. So those obedient to the commandments shall receive peace. How propoe to compare peace to a river, since we all know how that feels as we stand next to one and waves, the sea is flowing and constant and numerous. I looked up the definition of waves. I thought it was kind of interesting um, and comparable. The ocean surface is a continual motion. Waves are the result of disturbance of the water's surface. Waves themselves represent a restoring force to calm the surface. The standard example is the rock in the pond scenario. The rock provides the disturbing force and generates waves that radiate outward, eventually losing their momentum dissipating their energy so that the pond returns to calm. My Laman and Lemuel felt more peaceful through their journey if they were obedient to the commandments. Remember, peace doesn't mean easier. Same trials can have a much different outlook if we obey the commandments. Um, With just a few minutes left, um, I have uh, another short example I experienced last week that maybe I'll talk about. Um, we're talking about loneliness, and in, in second or sorry, in Nephi 21, through the efforts of his servants, the Messiah will gather Israel. so what do you think it's like to have been forgotten? If your darkest hours, it's probably how one might feel. No one understands, relates more than Christ does. Um, when I was dropping my children off to school last week I dropped them off every morning in Sugarhouse and I was coming across uh, I was going south on Imperial and I was going to take a left on 33rd South and that time in the morning it's really busy there's lots of cards it's really hard to take a left turn to cross five lanes of traffic essentially and go on to 33rd South which is right next to that cemetery so I, um, I was actually talking to my husband on not on my phone but on my Bluetooth and I was saying something to him and in the corner of my eye I looked across the street and I noticed um, a girl and she looked like she was trying to cross the street and I noticed that she had a blind stick and I, it was just kind of a fleeting thought and I turned left and I started heading 33rd and I looked at her in the rearview mirror and I thought oh I hope she doesn't cross that street because it's so hard and for anybody it's hard but I, I was pretty sure that she couldn't see. And so on my way home, you start justifying, saying, oh, well, someone will probably help her, or um, maybe she was waiting for a ride, or um, maybe she lives on the house she was standing in front of. I'd never noticed anybody like that there before. So I got almost home, almost to 3900 South along 20th East, and I thought, I have to go back. So I turned around, and I came back, and I. I drove down, I drove down to 33rd South, and I looked over to the left, and she was still in the exact same place, standing there. And by then, it had probably been about 10 minutes that she had been standing there since I had left her. So I pulled over to the side of the road, and I ran through the traffic on the other side, and I got to her, and I didn't want to startle her, but I just said, Excuse me, I, I noticed, are you trying to cross the street? And she was probably about 20, and she said, Oh, yes, I am. And I I didn't ask her if she was blind or anything. I just said, um, well, it's really, really busy on this road. I said, "Have, have you ever been here before? And she goes, no. And I said, well, how did you get here? And she said, well, I'm from Sandy. I took a bus. And I need to go find the House of Death. And I think it's across the street. And I said, you're absolutely right. It's just across the street, a little bit to the left. And I said, the safest way to cross is probably to go down the hill you probably came from and go back that way. But I said, I'll tell you what. I'll, um, I'll help you cross the street. So we waited for several minutes. because there was so much traffic. And um, we, we really couldn't do it the whole way. And I didn't know how fast she could run. And I wasn't going to drag this poor woman across the street. So I grabbed her by the arm and we walked to the middle of the median and at this point there were a couple of cars that could see that we were trying to cross and they both stopped to let us cross to the other side. And I said, well I want to walk you to the building. So we went up to the building, just as we were, approached the entrance to the door someone came out and said, oh are you so and so, I've been waiting for you. And I was so glad that she was greeted by someone and that knew someone knew to take care of her. Um, But what I can't help but remember is um, talk about destitute and feeling lonely. At that point, standing on a busy road, not being able to see anything or where to go or even possibly know how to get back to the bus stop that you came from. So in summary, in First Nephi 22, after Nephi read Isaiah's prophecies, Nephi's brethren asked him to explain the meaning of these prophecies. And so Nephi taught his brethren that the house of Israel would be scattered upon all the face of the earth and also among all nations. So in the remainder of 22, Nephi explained how the Lord would gather the house of Israel to let them know that they are not lonely, they are not alone. So what does this all mean? The doctrine of the scattering and the gathering has at least three important elements. First, we see historical, historically God's dealings with the house of Israel as a consequence of their violation of covenants which led to the dispersion. Second, the gathering is an ongoing movement evidenced today by the return of thousands of Jews to Palestine and the creation of the state of Israel. And Even more significant is the spiritual gathering of the millions into the restored church and their identification as members of the House of Israel. Third, our individual role in the gathering includes our responsibility to carry the Gospel message to the world and to provide an ensign around which mo- modern Israel might rally. Um, I went to the spoken word on Sunday and one of the things that they, ta- they talked actually about loneliness in the spoken word, and it says, experts are now saying that loneliness is becoming a public health hazard. As one researcher put it, many nations around the world now suggest we are facing a loneliness epidemic. In England, for example, a telephone hotline has been set up for those who feel lonely can talk to somebody about whatever they want for as long as they want. The hotline receives about 10,000 calls a week. So sisters, um, we are not destitute in this world today of the things that we're seeing um, tangibly that are crumbling before us with the natural disasters, but God has provided a plan for us to return to his presence, and he has um, given us things to live by to help us to receive more peace and guidance so that we can return to live with him. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.